This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Hello, Professor Sharma. My name is Pankaj Jain. Hello, Namaste, Professor Sharma and the audience and viewers. Uh, I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network uh, or South Asia Channel, South Asia, South Asian Studies books, and also Indian Religions books for the New Books Network. And today I have a distinct pleasure and honor of having one of the most senior scholars in Hindu studies, Arvind Sharma, whose books we read as students and generation of students probably read his dozens and dozens of books. I mean, I'm wondering, every year he comes out with a new book. It's so hard to keep track of the books. But so glad to have you, Professor Sharma. How are you doing in Montreal? Well, I'm fine, thank you. Yes. And uh, so today, the topic of today's discussion or our conversation would be uh, a great new book, a path-breaking, amazingly, of course, scholarly, super enriched book, a book called Ruler's Gaze uh, and Study of India from Saidian perspective, Edward Saidian's uh, theme, Professor Sharma takes in the context of India, which has not be done from this perspective that Professor Sharma brings. So this book was published by Harper Collins, uh, I think in 2000, uh, it has been a couple of years already, uh, I forgot the exact year, but it has been out for a few years now, Harper Collins, India, and uh, Professor Sharma can tell us more how his book is really unique from other similar books that have been attempted before. Professor Sharma, over to you. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how five is unique, uh, in the sense that it deals broadly with the same issues which uh, other people have addressed, but perhaps in a slightly different way. The way I understood Saeed, and of course it's a very rich text, so different people can understand it in different ways. Um, it's a path-breaking work, and again it leads to the same thing. People will take different paths from it. Uh, but I drew two major conclusions from it, or what impressed me after reading it were these two points. The first was the relationship between power and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Our self-image in the academia is of people pursuing knowledge for its own sake. Yes. In an objective and detached manner. Mm-hmm. Of course, being sympathetic or empathetic when necessary, but basically in a detached, neutral manner, we acquire knowledge and draw our conclusions. Yes. But Sai's work was very unsettling from this point of view, because he argued that the power equation between what is being studied and who is studying it, or rather who is being studied and who is studying it, has a major role to play in our exercise. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a very interesting point which Saeed is making. I would like to locate him in the broader theme mm-hmm. of the hermeneutics of suspicion. Mm-hmm. Now, the great masters in the hermeneutics of suspicion, 
the three names which are usually taken are those of Nietzsche and Freud and Marx. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether I got the chronological order right, but these are the three big names. Freud, Freud Marx. Yeah. And, and now I think we are in a position to add Saeed to this list. That is, the knowledge we acquire has to be looked at with suspicion. Mm. That is why they are the masters of suspicion. Right. And so this is one uh, suggestion I have to make to those who are doing hermeneutics of suspicion. But I come back to the main point yeah. that the relationship between power and knowledge is not an innocent one. This is mm -hmm. the first conclusion. Yes. The second one was... On that that note, actually, can I, maybe, maybe I can interrupt. You really turned the Baconian maxim that knowledge is yes. power to power is knowledge. So that's power is knowledge. Yes. Okay. Then yes. the second major conclusion I drew uh, from the book was, or what I see as the main point of the book is that when the West talks about the Orient, and here one has the Orient in terms of Islam in mind, mm -hmm. it is not really looking at what is in front of it. It is looking at its own construct yes. of what is looking at, yes. of what it is looking at. Yes. So that if you apply this in terms of India, when the West talks about India, it does not talk about India as we see it. Mm -hmm. As Indians see it, or as even neutral observers might see it. Yes. It sees India in terms of what it thinks India is. Yes. And it has only conjured up an image of India. Right. And that's what it deals with. Right. That reminds me of Ronald Indian's another path-breaking book, Imagining India. It's some imagination. Yeah. Yes. Oh, but see, imagining India can be a very creative act. That is to say, mm -hmm. uh, India is associated with certain ideas mm -hmm. and with a certain kind of history. Now you can reinterpret it. That's not a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a creative endeavor. Yes. But here it is not that. Ah, it is a pre-existing. Yes. It's a pre-existing image. Mm -hmm. And what you are relating with is the image and not the reality. Right. It is as if you meet some person and the person already has an idea of who you are. Right. Or what your personality is and what kind of a person you are. Mm -hmm. So he's, when he's dealing with you, he's not dealing with you directly. <laughs> yes. He's dealing with, if he has that image of you already in his mind, yes. then he's dealing with that image or if he's dealing with you, he's dealing with you through that image, through the filter of that image. Yes. Now, this is a very important point. Mm -hmm. That what the West engages with is not uh, the reality as such, mm -hmm. but its own image of that reality, which is already fabricated, which it is already fabricated. And intentionally so, right? And you know, yeah. sinister intentions. Yeah. So, so these are the two main points: yeah. the relationship between knowledge and power, yeah. and the idea 
that when the West deals with another culture, it is not dealing with that culture as such per se, mm. but is dealing with its own construct of that culture. Mm. Yeah. Now, this book focuses on the first, mm. the nature between religion, sorry, with the relationship between knowledge and power. Oh, power is knowledge. Is yeah. Really. Uh, so this is my take. Uh, I mean, I could have done two things. Mm -hmm. After reading Saida, I could have done two things. I would have examined his general thesis that knowledge and power are related and looked for evidence to either support it or to question it. Mm -hmm. The second thing I could have done was to then identify, as he has done, for Islam mm -hmm. and for the Middle East, what image of India and of Hinduism the West has. Mm -hmm. I don't do that in this book. Mm -hmm. I attend to the first issue, knowledge and power, and I ask mm -hmm. the following question. Right. If knowledge and power are so closely related, then it follows that the following five or six conclusions should hold. Yes. And I have listed them. Right. And then I go through them. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. And you do it so chronologically. So William Jones has one image of India, and then as British Raj consolidates its power and more sort of gets more brutalized, brutalizing, and how that, Im yes. that impacts the depiction of India, portrayal of India. Yeah, this is this is very striking. Uh, the year 1888 is very important. Mm -hmm. That's when the British defeated the Marathas. Right, exactly. In the I think that the third uh, war with them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then became the principal power on the Indian subcontinent. Yes. So that is when the role changes as one of the powers in India, as an a as a power in India to the power in India. Yeah. And right. that's when the shift in the scholarship takes place. Yes. Yes. Uh, I've already uh, shared this magazine twice, but maybe you could explain how knowledge is power that we have heard from. Bacon, but you say power is knowledge. Maybe you can explain a bit more on that. I think that is really so. Yes. So power is knowledge in the sense that your power relationship shapes your knowledge of what you are studying. Exactly. Uh, actually, in many senses, power is knowledge in many senses. Mm -hmm. One sense in which it is knowledge is that you can, through your power, shape the kind of knowledge which is acquired about something. Mm -hmm. For instance, the British introduced the idea in India that one can only follow one religion at a time. Yes. I think the idea was already there because of Islam and Christianity. But they introduced the idea in public administration. In India, yes. So that in their census, ultimately, you had to specify only one religion to which you belong. Yes. So now, even though most Indians would be happy to identify themselves as followers of more than one religion. And now they are going to identify themselves as followers of only one religion. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And this is going to shape their own self-understanding, their own knowledge about themselves. <laughs> Your power to carry out the census has affected not just your knowledge of them, their own knowledge yeah. of their own religious tradition. Yes, yes. The striking example of this is that in India, if you ask somebody whether he's a Hindu or a Buddhist, he will specify one. Mm -hmm. But if you go to Nepal, where there was no such census, because it lay outside the domain of British rule, directly. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you ask a Nepali whether he is a Hindu and he will say yes. Mm -hmm. And ask him whether he is a Buddhist, he will also say yes. Mm -hmm. right. And this has been confirmed by numerous surveys and by anthropological studies. Yes. I've heard this also applies to Japan. Are you a Shinto? Yes. Are you a Buddhist? Yes. In Japan, right? Yes. This is a very striking point. Yes. What it shows to us is that this, uh, this uh, proclivity mm -hmm. or this uh, approach to religion, which accepts multiple religious affiliation, mm -hmm. may be not just an Indian trait, mm -hmm. but an Asian characteristic. Yes, Western yes. Asian, yes, yes. So in, in China, you have the three teachings. Yes. And in Japan, again, as you pointed out, Right. You have, who have repeated surveys have shown yes. that 95% of the Japanese mm -hmm. indicate themselves as followers of Shinto. Yes. And 76% of the same population also declares itself as Buddhist. As Buddhists. So we are quite happy to declare themselves simultaneously as followers of Shinto and Buddhism. Uh, so, and we know about uh, pre communist China and we know about India even now. Yes. So, this is a major point. I think this has been neglected yes. in human rights discourse. Yes. And the discourse in general, this point. Because it has extremely serious implications. Yeah. The whole idea of a majority and a minority is based on the idea of exclusive religious affiliation. Right. If you can follow three religions at a time, yeah. what happens to the majority and the minority? Yeah. It all open boundaries. They all become open yes. Given yes. 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 Yeah. I think this is one of the major uh, problems which has been created for us mm. from our own perspective mm. because of British rule over India. Do you think even and caste, other, uh, caste surveys, even caste. they also, yes. right, that result of the similar exercise? It's the same problem with caste. First name and... and Nicholas, Nicholas Dirks has documented mm. this quite well. Yes, caste from Yes, yes, yes. Right. Um, he points out that what the British did was to make caste the sole 
almost the sole, if not the ma- the major, if not the sole referent right. of identity. Yes. For Indians right. in the social realm. Whereas earlier on, it was one of the many. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Along with that, uh, you had uh, temple communities. Yes. Um, you had uh, lineages. Mm-hmm. You had uh, little kingdoms. Mm-hmm. You had warrior subcasts. Mm-hmm. You had uh, sects. Mm-hmm different sex, you had devotional networks. Mm-hmm. All of that. He lists about 10, he lists about 10 of them. Yes, yes, yes. And caste, you could say, is one of them. Right. But then the effect of focusing on caste and insisting on it has the effect of making it so surprising. I'm told there is a scholar, Western scholar, who asks every Indian when he meets him, what is your caste? That <laughs> uh, obsession with caste. I mean, so you have to ask whether obsession with caste is Indian or Western. <laughs> yes. Here, here, Saeed is very helpful. Mm-hmm. In the construct of India and Hinduism, which the West has created for itself, it has given this primary this sole, almost sole significance to caste. To caste, yes. And this is what they are relating with. Now, here comes the knowledge power thing. Uh When you have power over the other party, you can impose your model on that reality. And make that reality confirm to your model. Uh I'll give you a striking example of this. Yes, yes which has been documented by Shashi Prabha Ray, I think. Okay. At JNU. She has pointed out that in Southeast Asia, the major religious sites were sacred for Hindus, Buddhists, and local cults as well. Mm-hmm. When the when these areas fell under European control, mm-hmm. they apportioned these sites to Hindu and Buddhists. Oh, same problem. Yeah. Their argument was that these people are confused. <laughs> they are childlike, they are confused. Uh-huh. We are going to rationalize everything. <laughs> I'll give you a glaring example of this. If I take the name Angakur Vat. Uh-huh. With which religious tradition will you identify it? I think most Hindus would say Angkor Wat was the Hindu temple, largest Hindu temple on the planet. When the French arrived there, uh-huh. there was a Buddhist Sangha operating right there. Oh, <laughs> it was asked to pack up. Oh, it was asked to pack up. Wow. Because it's Hindu. This is how the reality is being changed yeah. through power. Yes. Which is still power is, shaping, power is shaping knowledge. Yes. And we will grow up on the idea that Yangakor Wat is uh, Hindu. Yes. And uh, 
Bara Borobudur is a Buddhist. Right, right, right. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. And similarly, one of the first things I noticed on coming to the West was that they treated Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism as separate traditions. Mm-hmm. In yes. India, yeah. we are brought up differently. And when I mentioned this, they all said, oh, you are Indian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very hard no, to you are explain that they can be overlapping, intertwined, give and take is happening all the time within these four traditions. Right, right, right. Yeah. So in this respect, we have to be very careful that the knowledge we now think we have of our own traditions mm-hmm. is, if if you want to use a soft word, a filtered one. Mm-hmm. And if you want to use a hard word, even a harsh word, it's a corrupted one. Mm-hmm. Or could be. Mm-hmm. So that we have to review our own knowledge. Yes. Of our own tradition and history, mm-hmm. or the manner in which it may have been modified mm-hmm. because it has come to us through the prism of the West. So much, yeah, so much it has been colorized by this colonial construct. So, this is the task we have to engage in. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I can go to the next question. Uh, yes. So, uh, you have, I think you have also mentioned this elsewhere that uh, so Indian system or Indian civilization or Indic civilization has been written and stud- I mean, studied and written by Greeks and Chinese and the, and the Muslims and the British, right? So do you think that Edward uh, Saidian thesis can be applied to all these four approaches and you'd see any difference The point I was trying to make there mm-hmm. was that if knowledge is power mm-hmm. and if the relationship of the Muslims and the Christians to us, mm-hmm. to the Hindus, mm-hmm. was has a, had an element of power in it mm-hmm. in which they were the rulers and we were the rule. You're right then that knowledge should have be affected by mm-hmm. this equation. Mm-hmm. So that they have a different kind of... Two points emerge from this. Mm-hmm. There should be similarities in the kind of knowledge they acquire about us, both being the rulers, having been the rulers. Mm-hmm. And the difference between that and what the Chinese and the Greeks have to say about us, because we did not have the ruler-rule relationship. Right, exactly. So I've explored that okay. in the book. Mm-hmm. One very striking, striking point here is yes. that the Greeks identified equality mm. as the main feature oh. of Indic civilization. Wow. Okay. That's so different from how British saw it. So different from what the Western yeah, take is and what the Muslim and, Muslim and Christian take. All right, right. How did that happen? I mean, what exactly they noticed or what do they? Yes, uh, this is a very striking point. Megasthenes says that there is no slavery in India. Uh 
Right. So slavery was an important feature of uh, Greek civilization. Greek and Romans, yes. Greek and Roman. Yeah. Roughly a third of the population of Athens consisted of Greeks. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of Rome. Mm -hmm. And they did not find slave that slavery in India. Mm -hmm. Now, scholars point out that India had slavery, mm -hmm. but it did not have the kind of slavery mm -hmm. which we find in Greece and Rome. Mm -hmm. Their economic system was almost built on slavery. Mm -hmm. But right. in India, you could sell yourself in slavery. Mm -hmm. Individuals could become slaves mm -hmm. and could become free. Okay. But it was not a fundamental feature of its economic or social system, okay. right. which it was in Greece. In the West, yes. So its absence struck them as remarkable. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing is, mm -hmm that when Megasthenes talks about the caste system in India, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. or when Megasthenes seems to be talking mm -hmm. about what you would now call caste-like categories, mm -hmm. he doesn't speak of four varnas. Oh, okay. He has seven or eight categories of different kinds. Mm -hmm. Now, this is very interesting because according to modern genetic studies, it is from the first century onwards that we get endogamous units okay. uh, in Indian social history. Mm. That is, through genetic study, you can identify that there were these isolated strands mm -hmm. because of endogamy. Right. And the Manusmiti is usually placed around the second century AD. Right. Yeah. And it is associated mainly with the formulation of the caste system. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Uh, so one could actually, this gives us an op opportunity. I don't know whether you want to move in that direction or not. But this gives us the opportunity to take a new look at the so-called caste system mm. and identify three main phases in it. Mm -hmm. One, when Varna was the main category, mm -hmm. a second in which Jati became the main category, mm -hmm. and a third in which caste, quote-unquote, became oh. the main category. Right, right, right. Varna can be based on birth, mm -hmm. but need not always be so. Mm -hmm. There was a certain flexibility right. with the Varna. Yes. When you come to the Jati system, mm -hmm. Jati is from the root genesis, you know, the same root. Yes. So it's all based on birth. Mm -hmm. Now, one problem which the Indian sociologists had to deal with was how to relate Varna with Jati. Mm -hmm. You can develop the following scenario. There is a Vedic community in what is now Pakistan. You know, that is the area of the Vedas, mm -hmm. Rig Veda. They are now spreading all over India. Mm -hmm. We have this idea of the four Varnas, 
And when they spread over India, they find meet with these co separate communities. Right. They intermix and intermix. Which have their own craft, which do yes. socialize among themselves and so on. Mm -hmm. And they have this idea of the four varnas. So how do you relate them, integrate them? Mm -hmm. And the device they use is to maintain that the varna, the jati, sorry, the jatis emerged from intermarriage among the varnas. Mm -hmm. And you have this whole treatment in the dharma sutras and the dharma shastras of how this happened. Right. Now, most modern scholars tend to dismiss this as fabricated. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, why Sankar and all may have developed? Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole idea that mm -hmm. the jatis emerged from the intermarriage of the varnas mm -hmm. was basically a contrived idea. Right. Okay. But some Indian thinkers have pointed out. Mm -hmm that it may be so, but look at what it achieved. Mm. It made the entire Hindu community of one blood. Mm -hmm. Because of the intermixing intermarriage. You know? Right, right. So intercaste marriage is a very age-old thing. <laughs> it's, really, it's really the original imagined community uh -huh. Of what is it, Benedict Anderson, who is the fellow who's yes, is, is, Ashley, yeah, Ashley, yeah. Ashley, yes, yes. the Ashley, scholar Ashley, associated there. Yeah. Yes. So, so they created yeah. very organically but, the nation developed, so-called now what we call so the nation. An amazing achievement, uh, yes. in a sense. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, then we come to the third stage. Mm -hmm. They the British introduced a new element in it almost. Mm. They insisted that all the jatis must belong to certain varnas. Ah, so forcefully then, yeah. And this is what they tried to achieve through their various censuses. Right. Yes. The right. other interesting conclusion, uh -huh. the other interesting conclusion to draw from this is mm -hmm. that Shankara already says mm -hmm. that in real life we do not find that what people are doing conforms to the varnas. <laughs> Shankara is already saying that. They're already saying that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what does it show? The flexibility and openness and all, right? That, that these are actually more like classifications. Yes, not prescription, but yeah. Not Classification. Yeah, rather than social realities. Right, 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 right. I think even Al Baruni notes something like that, right? Isn't it in Al Baruni when he <laughs> is writing? Or I don't, I don't remember out Al Baruni. Okay. But this is like saying there is the bourgeoisie and there are the proletariat. Uh -huh. Who is in these can change. Okay. Okay. Right? Right. That's really interesting. And compare that. Already, yeah. already in the time of Kumaril, uh -huh. who is actually usually regarded as the senior contemporary of All right. Shankara, Kumaril says specifically that 
India has had kings from all the Varanas, mm-hmm. including the excluded Shudras, including the former untouchables. Mm-hmm. Right. So even they could have their own. So kind of both Kumari and Shankar are aware of the social reality. Right. Wow. Mm. And so we find, and what do we find in the end? Mm-hmm. The British gave up trying to slot everybody in the four Varnas. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they also even gave the relationship between caste and occupation. Mm. It all became fixed. They, they kept struggling as to how to, you know, uh, mm. if you don't mind my saying, to pigeonhole oh, yeah. yeah, the social reality of India. Yeah. So it's the same reality, right from the time of Shankara to modern times. Mm-hmm. These are notional mm-hmm. categories. Yes, yes, yes. We need to pay more attention to this idea. Right. That they are as notional as they might be social. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so on. Right. But we have digressed a bit. Okay. So you can ask your next question. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I guess. Uh, I think other two major texts that you really analyze with Saidian thesis is the text by, or the words by, or now famous or notorious words by Macaulay, James Mill, maybe you can talk about a little bit more, how they were, you know, doing these things, power of knowledge. Yeah, James Mill, mm-hmm is very important because he published his book, mm-hmm. I think, History of British India, yes. around 1818. Right, right. And his book was directed against the Orientalists, as he called them, mm. against so William, Jones. William Jones and others, who had a positive view of India. Yes. Mill had a negative view of India. Yes. He developed a negative view of India. Incidentally, though, I found that he does not make much use of sati mm. to criticize Hinduism. Okay. He found other things to criticize. You know, others, others were very active in doing that, especially the missionaries. Right. But he doesn't make a special point of it. I was quite intrigued by this. Uh-huh. Oh, on that I'm note, actually, can I ask a footnote kind of question on that? Uh, yeah. yeah. You really, I mean, I was amazed that how you saw the relationship between what missionaries were writing and how so-called secular authors were writing, how they were influenced, getting influenced by a similar idea. Can you talk about it? Yes. Yeah. A modern scholar who has done very good work on that is Meenakshi Jain. Oh, yes. yes. She has done very good work on this. Okay, so now, one of the ideas which Mill developed was that India was always in the condition in which the British found it in the early years of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Like frozen state, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Because he argued that way, because he said that I don't need to go to India. <laughs> yes. He never came to India and he wrote all these books yeah. about India history. But it's very interesting to see his argument for doing that. He said, I don't need to go to India because what ancient India was like I can find out right now by seeing what the Indians are. And to see what the Indians are, I can rely on the European visitors to India. Yes. 
mystery accounts in here, right? Because they provide solid rational accounts. Indians are all fantasy. Yes. So I don't need to go. Yes. And he never came to India and he wrote the book. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Right. Right. And uh, something similar goes for Max Muller also, who never came to yeah. India. But he owned yeah, that's, time change. Could you talk now, about that? The, the, exception, the exception is Macaulay. Macaulay. So Macaulay does come to India. Right. Uh, but then, uh, you know, Macaulay is a very interesting figure. Uh, he had a very low opinion about, of course, yes. India. Yes. yes. But he was very consistent in some ways. Mm. So, uh, in one of in his, in his address to the British Parliament, mm -hmm. he makes a very interesting remark mm. that after we have introduced English education in India, mm. it has been suggested that Indians might also start demanding self-rule mm. uh, and uh, independent political existence and so on. Mm -hmm. And then he says, whether this will happen or not, I do not know. But we should not try to prevent it. <laughs> oh, okay. Because there are greater achievements mm -hmm. in the sense if by imbibing our culture, they want these things, that is a greater achievement than our continuing to rule over them. Uh, nice. <laughs> you see, as Pawan Varma has pointed out, mm -hmm. he, his expectation has been fulfilled in every respect. <laughs> English is more popular in India now than when the British left. <laughs> really ironical, but true. Indians in blood and color, but English in taste, in opinion, in morals, and in intellect. Yes. This holds true of the entire English-speaking class in India. Yes. There was only one respect in which he has not been proved. Right. He thought India would become Christian. Oh. Only little parts here and there, maybe Meghalaya, Nagaland, right? Yeah. Here. And that too after the British rule. After the British left, yes. Nagaland is after British rule. Yes, yes, yes. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But hmm. so they were, I think they were doing unintentionally, kind of, right? When they were borrowing missionary language into their writings, secular writing. Or, or was it intentional? What did you? No, but uh, they, some of them drew upon. Well, the, the relationship, the missionary thing is a mixed one. Okay. On the one hand, they were suspicious of the missionaries because they thought that it will upset people, their activities will upset people, which may not be good for our business. Mm. But when they became a power in India, Mm -hmm. In order to justify that power, mm -hmm. in order to justify ruling over Indians, mm -hmm. they drew upon the missionary condemnation of Hinduism. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Civilizing mission started kind of, yes. As an argument in favor of British rule. Yes. Another thing that I really, really was really stricken by what you mentioned is uh, only in 1813, apparently, right, if I remember correctly from your book, 1813, they allow the missionary activities in India before yeah. they don't allow. Yeah. What happened? What exactly happened that why did they allow? Was it related? So, all, all this is very well explained by Meenakshi Jain. Okay. 
there was an evangelical movement in England. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And it was ultimately under the influence of that. Okay. Hmm. And then, so after that, yeah, mission started. Yeah. And the evangelists had enough influence, political influence, hmm. because the charter had to be renewed periodically hmm. by the parliament. Mm-hmm. And then they could, yeah. Then they could do that. The charter of the East India Company. Right. Yes, yes. Yes. Wonderful. We can just keep talking about, oh, we've already <laughs> more than one. Anything else you would like to, I guess, summarize? And I think we have to come conclude now. We spoke a lot already. Yes. Uh, anything that I missed talking or asking you that you would like to add? No, I'm just trying to think what uh, other aspects, you know, right. uh, we might want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, first, of, first of all, the point is that our understanding of things should be nuanced. Yes. Right. So we, we, uh, we appreciate Western scholarship in certain ways, mm-hmm. but we should remember mm-hmm. that the Bowdoin chair mm-hmm. at Oxford. Yes, uh, Oxford, yes was founded to promote the con- conversion of the natives of India oh, wow. okay. to Christianity. Okay. So it is not as good as it seems on surface, yeah. as harmless that as it seems. That chair is still there, right? Borden chair still have it on. Yeah, it's still there. Mm-hmm. Right. In the same way, my college, you know, has a very poor opinion about mm. India, Indians, Hindu culture and all. But in a way, he is consistent. Um, yes. That he is not going to, he was not in favor of mm-hmm. preventing the political aspirations of the Indians right. from being taken into account. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, at, the, at this time, there was no as, such aspiration. So who knows how he would have reacted mm-hmm. If we had to face that situation, mm-hmm. because we know that other, other imperialists like Churchill mm-hmm. have also been very consistent. Mm-hmm. They don't hide, but in a negative way. Yeah, right, right. In their political understanding of it. Yes, yes. So that we should keep this in mind. It does not get him off the hook, you know. Mm-hmm. But at least he is that way. Consistent. In fact, very strikingly, mm. he opposed any British legislation in India mm. which was based on race. Oh, okay. Totally opposed. Very liberal and progressive. So, in that, that this is that, yeah. Wonderful. Okay. So, we right, should sir, appreciate that. Yes. We should probably conclude for the, in the interest of time. We have, yeah. Yeah. We will continue our dialogue. Yes, no, the, the, I mean, we have had a wide-ranging discussion on several topics. Yeah. And we might like to bring matters to a conclusion. Yes. By, uh, by emphasizing that we are in a stage, we are at the cusp at the moment right. of a revised endology. Yes. Mm-hmm. Indology started as a Western enterprise. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 Now it is being Indianized. Yes. It is meeting a lot of resistance. Yes. 
just as you fight for Indian independence, but with a lot of resistance. Oh, yeah. This is the fight for intellectual independence, right. which is meeting with a lot of resistance. Mm -hmm. But just, but just ultimately, there was a more or less amicable transfer of power mm. in the political field. Right. Yeah. The image may not be the right one for intellectual discourse, you know. Mm -hmm. It is not just all based on power. It is much less based on power, much more on knowledge. Right. Yeah, on, in, on its own terms. Something similar should happen. Yeah. But, but the model works because the resistance which it is provoking right. seems to, very resistance seems to imply yeah. that there was a lot of power invested in it. Mm. The resistance, the revision of Indology yeah, is facing yeah. at the hands of the Indians. Yeah. And Indians I'm using here include those who uh, are sympathetic to the, who are not Indian, but sympathetic to the Indian outlook. Mm. And by Westerners, I mean not just Westerners, but also those Indians. Yeah. yeah. Who are sympathetic to the Western outlook. Right, right. At the moment, these two communities are engaged in a struggle, virtual struggle. Yes. For shaping Indology. Right. And we are in the middle of that. Yes. We have to recognize that. Two, more than two decades already that resistance. Yeah, it's going on. Yes, yes, yes. So hopefully something amicable will happen in the future. Like yeah, that. so 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 both as as uh, students of Indian history and culture, both as uh, academics in the field and as Indian citizens, we should recognize our location, mm -hmm. our historical location, mm -hmm. that we are in the middle of the struggle yeah, okay. at the moment. Yes. On that great note, I think we have to conclude today in the interest of time. Thank you very much, and uh, we hope to continue this, con this conversation with you on many of your other books also. Thank you again very much. And yes. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, sir.